The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. for you from God's own holy word, Luke chapter 23, the latter portion about the last third of that chapter, in the midst of the crucifixion, we considered the thief calling out to Christ at our last consideration. Let us pick up right there at verse 44. I'll read Luke 23, 44 through the end of the chapter. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, We always have a sense that we ought to stand back and just be quiet and be silent before the awe of what we have read and what happened there so long ago. Help us, our God and Father, to see Christ in his glory in the midst of this degradation and suffering and injustice and cruelty, and to see what we did to put him there. Thank you, Lord, that we know at the end of the day there is redemption. For otherwise, if we were responsible for this without relief, we would be dead men. 
and dead women. Thank you for the hope that the cross creates. In Jesus' name, amen. We know that when the Lord gave his law on Mount Sinai, that was an occasion accompanied by some very spectacular, miraculous events. The mountain itself was all a fire and covered with smoke. Moses brought from the mountain the tablets of law, which we are given to understand were somehow delivered to Moses without being chiseled by the hand of a stone carver. That God himself did miraculous things in delivering his law. He did miracles in bringing Israel out of Egypt, opening the sea and providing bread for them and water and bringing the plagues on the Egyptians and destroying them. He did miracles when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The conception of Christ itself in the womb of a virgin, of course, and that great star that guided wise men from a far place. And so it should be no surprise that there were wonders and miracles that surrounded the crucifixion of Jesus, for God was here visibly showing that his historic work was underway, and there were signs attending it. Now, there are more than just the ones we're going to consider. For example, another gospel tells of bodies coming out of the tomb on resurrection morning, but I'm just going to consider three that are in this short passage that I read tonight. This unnatural darkness that shrouds the Father's judgment upon his Son. The torn curtain of the temple opening a new way to God. And a changed heart of an individual that you would think could not have been changed in such a way by any power but that of the Spirit of God. These subordinate miracles, secondary miracles to the cross itself will tell us some things that might help remind us what this event was all about, this cross of Jesus. So first of all, verses 44 to 45 tell about darkness to shroud the Father's judgment upon the divine Son. It's interesting that the very opening of creation is concerned with darkness and light, isn't it? We're told that the world was formless and void without shape and darkness covered the face of the deep and the Lord said, let there be light and there was light. You could really say this was a reversal of that Because it was high noon, the time of day when it is brightest, the Middle East ordinarily, unless there's heavy clouds or rain, is a bright place. The sun beams hot. The sun should have been brightest, but here it is at that hour of day, unnaturally dark. And the scripture author, himself a scientist, makes no effort to explain to us the origin of that darkness. He's just a reporter. There are people that say, well, must have been there. They go to great lengths and say, well, when did solar eclipses occur? Was there a solar eclipse? Well, that effort is completely in vain because a solar eclipse makes things semi-dark for three or four minutes, not for three hours. And besides, the Passover time in Israel was always at the full moon when a solar eclipse could not occur. 
So that explanation just won't wash. People say, well, maybe a dust storm, some kind of a a rare, unusual storm that darkened the sky. We're just not going to spend our time going down that path because we don't know the answer. We do not know how and why it was, and we don't necessarily consider that it was when it says the whole land, that that was the earth itself, but it certainly was that area. It was Jerusalem. It was the surrounding area to some extent. And I like the translation of the English Standard Version. I think it's a conservative translation of the Greek. The sun's light failed. That's what we're told. You know, this darkness is meant to be meaningful. If you'd look back just in a previous chapter, chapter 22, I didn't emphasize this text when we were doing that chapter. 22, verse 53, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said to those who came to arrest him, including Judas, this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's the hour of darkness, Jesus said. The hour when men skulk about with weapons to do things to people weaker than themselves. Colossians chapter 1 calls the place where Satan reigns the domain of darkness. And you remember when Judas went out, I'm not sure which of the Gospels, I think it's John, that said when Judas went out of the upper room, he left on his errand to betray the Lord, and the text adds that telling little phrase, and it was night. Men do these kind of things at night under the cover of dark where Satan moves about and works his schemes. They wouldn't come in the full light of day. Jesus had challenged them. He said, I taught in the temple every day. Where were you? Did you want to contradict me? Did you want to arrest me as if I was a revolutionary? I was right there. I wasn't hiding. But they were hiding. We read repeatedly, they would not take him. They would not move against him for fear of the people. So they came at the time of the domain of Satan under the cloak of dark. Besides a symbol of evil being at work, this darkness, we think you could say, represents mourning. M-O-U-R-N, mourning of God for his only son. I would cite Amos chapter 8 for that, a prophecy that speaks in Amos 8, 9, and 10. The prophet speaks for the Lord saying, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like unto the morning for an only son. The father was judging the son, but he was also mourning the son. But then, too, I think the chief meaning. The chief symbolism, if you would say, of this darkness at Calvary was to show you that this was the time of judgment. I've seen it in movies. I don't know if they still do this in British courts or not. If you've ever seen the, either live on TV or in a movie, the judges in a high British court wearing their white wool wigs. I never wanted to wear one of those things, I can tell you that. When they're ready to announce the sentence of death, they used to at least have a black square of cloth 
and they would put it on top of their head as if this is a dark thing. This is the ultimate judgment. This is the taking of a life. Zephaniah, little-known prophet of the Old Testament, chapter 1, had predicted a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish that is come, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then he spins out how God will judge on such a day. During those three hours, we believe, from noon until 3 p.m., on a day we strangely call Good Friday, Jesus bore the sins of humanity. He became the sin bearer. He was made to be sin for us. He didn't sin, but he wasn't just made to have some sins or touch some sins or be contaminated by some sins. The scripture says he was made to be sin. And so God had to come against that as he would come against all that is unholy. Turning his face, letting his curse fall and his holy wrath be poured out as the Old Testament had promised in many different ways that it would come. A cup of wrath being drunk down to its last dregs. That was Jesus in those hours. He was under the curse of God. We had a message here just a recent Sunday night. People ask, what are we saying when we say the Apostles' Creed and we say he descended into hell? It isn't some hocus-pocus that went on when Jesus was in the grave. It was here. John Calvin said Christ was in hell on the cross. That is what you are confessing, ladies and gentlemen. He went to the absolutely opposite extreme of the favor of his father until everything that God was was turned against him. No wonder it was dark. This was a disturbance in the fabric of creation, a rupture in the unity of the Godhead. And Isaac Watts said it as a hymn writer so very well when he wrote, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Who can comprehend this thing? Who can comprehend the son of God saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? He lived Psalm 22. Not just in pitiful cries, but in his soul. And the face of God the Father couldn't even look upon Jesus the Son because of what we are. Because of what we are. Me and you. That's why this happened. This unnatural darkness that signified the judgment of God. Well, there's another miracle here in verse 45, a sign miracle. And it's a torn curtain opening a new way to God. We read, when Jesus drew his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a curtain, if you do a little research on it, 
building of the temple. I wanted to give you a way to visualize it. I understand this curtain was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. Now, the room you're sitting in, I don't have a tape measure to be able to do it, and I actually pulled out old blueprints and couldn't quite find the measurements that would help me, but I think from brick floor to top of ceiling is about 34 feet in this room. This curtain is 60 feet high, almost double, and 30 feet wide. We do know a little bit about it because of the ordering of the making of the temple, the Lord's own instructions. It was a heavy linen curtain of multiple layers. You shouldn't think of just some flimsy little drapery. It was heavy. One writer said it was as thick as a man's hand. All very beautiful, blue and red and purple dyes had dyed the linen and the designs that were in this. And it was set in between the second most sacred place, the the holy place, as it was called, and the most holy place, the holy of holies. Now, different priests did their work in the temple. They could see this curtain, but one person, one person only ever got near it. Nobody went in there, you know, with the vacuum cleaner or something. I I have no idea what that room was like inside because it wasn't cleaned. I can guarantee you that. The priest, the high priest, went there once a year, and he went there under fear of his life. The Old Testament describes him going there in his special garments, bathing, doing everything, all the rituals to get himself ready. And when he went in, they tied a cord to his ankle. Because if he didn't come out, if he died in the presence of God, nobody was going after him. They would pull him out. I don't know that that ever happened. But they were ready. This was the place you didn't tamper with. This was the inner sanctuary. The Ark of the Covenant was there. Everything that represented the presence, the special blessing, the dwelling of Jehovah God with his covenant people Israel was in that place. And and mere looking at that curtain said, God is somehow there. And at least at the beginning of the temple, in the days when it, it was revered, that was very special. Not sure that same attitude prevailed by the time of Jesus. But that big curtain before the Holy of Holies was put there by the command of God. It was like a huge no trespassing sign. Don't you dare come past this. The law of the Old Testament said, do not trifle with the presence of God. Come here only in the way instructed and when instructed by God. Do I have to explain to you what it symbolized when that curtain was ripped open the day Jesus died? There are people who scoff at this. You know, they say, oh, Christians just invented that. That didn't really happen. How do you know that happened? Who verified it? Well, there were priests working within near range of it. If it had not happened, we can argue from silence, if it was not true, there would have been people who would have said, that's ridiculous. We can see that that curtain has never been touched. As a matter of fact, there are ancient Jewish documents that record a bit of a scuffle and some business that wasn't very well specified that happened regarding the curtain in the temple in the early first century. It's not pinned down real specifically like we might wish it was. 
But something happened with the curtain. Jewish authorities say that. And it means something, of course. It means that once the last lamb came, and once the last altar was stained with the blood of the last and most perfect lamb, no more lambs. No more blood. No more priesthood. No more temple. Do you realize that that whole temple, all that it represented, all that it took to build it, became absolutely obsolete that day? Because the barrier to the presence of the blessing of God was ripped open. And there are people who would say today that their belief is, I believe, very twisted, that somehow that temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt for some reason. I cannot comprehend someday There are Christians who will teach that. Do not believe it. That would be an actually silly thing to do. That temple is obsolete. And it's been obsolete since the day Jesus died. And the way was opened through that barrier to the inner presence of God. It was only one generation that God said, Let the Romans tear the whole place down, and they did. You see, the death of Christ split that barrier. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Brothers, we now have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. This is either a tremendous fiction if it didn't happen or just a stunning, miraculous verification of what Jesus was doing. The Jesus who doesn't say, stay away. Don't you dare get too close to God. The Jesus who says, come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and loaded down, all you who are tired of your sins, come to me. I'll give you rest. God is 100% approachable by the one who caused the curtain to be torn, not, by the way, from the bottom up, As a man with a stepladder and a knife would work, the scripture says, from the top down, the curtain was torn. Third miracle, attending the death of Jesus. It came in the words of a man. You could say maybe this sounds like a man-made miracle, but it's a miracle because the man wouldn't have spoken the words without a miracle. I ask you to witness a changed heart demonstrating the power of the cross. And it's the Roman centurion, the captain of the guard. The man in charge of the squad who manhandled Jesus and had done so from the night before when he was given into Roman custody. The same men who spit on him. The same men who scourged him with a whip and laid his back wide open. The same men who put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns and were more or less allowed to have their sport with him. And this centurion allowed it. I don't know that he necessarily sponsored it or told them to do it, but he didn't stop them. This man, we assume, it must be by his own testimony, because by the way, most of the disciples, except the women, had already left the cross when this man spoke. We assume Luke, with his investigated ways of reporting all of this to his friend Theophilus, found out what this transformed man had to say. Remember, this man had heard Jesus saying, Father, 
forgive them, looking at him when he said it. That's not what convicts said on the cross. Believe me, I'm not going to repeat what convicts said on the cross to their Roman persecutors. Every curse that they could bring out of their roughest vocabulary was directed at those Romans. Jesus said, Father, forgive him, the one with the helmet on. And he spoke to his mother and John and said, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And he spoke to the convict beside him and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And he cried out that strangled cry, My God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said the last word reported in this text, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Listen, this centurion was a killer. He was a professional killer. He knew how to kill. He knew how to do it efficiently, painfully when that was desired. He knew how to draw it out and make it awful. He did this for a living. And apparently he'd never seen anybody die just like that. Because in Matthew 27, 54, we read that this battle-hardened soldier and his men, Matthew reports, were filled with awe. No crucifixion had ever gone quite like this one before. And so we have the man here saying, certainly this was an innocent man. Now there's a, an additional report, and whether he said both things or they were heard, and this is the same saying, it's a little hard to report, but they're not conflicting. In Matthew 27, the man said, surely this man was not just innocent, the son of God. He was what that little placard above him says, king of the Jews. He was that. Last Sunday we heard from the thief, the last one who committed his life to Christ while he was still alive. I called him the first trophy that Jesus took to heaven of a transformed life when he said, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom, but right alongside The minute after Jesus died is this other trophy. The first trophy after the death of Jesus was this hardened Roman centurion who professed everything he knew to be true about Christ. Innocent. Son of God. What more do you have to say? To be a Christian. Now, I don't pretend we know anything about this man's subsequent life. I'm sure novelists somewhere have developed that, but... We won't go into more than we know. But we believe this man is being presented to us as a transformed soul. He spoke the things that disciples speak. And he walked through that torn open curtain right up to his Savior, who is now dead, but not for long. In conclusion tonight, here at Calvary, it appears that God is not working. It appears that God is impotent. God is silent. He's not even here. I read about a young boy who, I don't know the age the story was telling about, this young boy who was reading a Bible story book and came upon a particularly lurid picture of of Jesus on the cross, and he studied that for a while. 
And he said to his mom or dad, if God had been there, he would not have allowed them to do that. Well, that's a good observation from a young man, but he needs to look deeper because, in fact, God was there. And God, in fact, was in all of this. And his miracles were showing us and teaching us, even while the most awful parts of it were going on, that he was there. He was stronger than this. He was stronger than the power of Rome, the injustice of Pilate and Herod and all the others. And he was actually doing something that in the end of it all would be glorious. Because whenever God does something, the end of it is glorious. Not always the result along the way while it's, while it's being worked out and the pieces are falling in place. But God was there in the darkness at noon, in his wrath, in the tearing of the temple curtain, in the conversion of this man. Yes, the darkness was dreadful and Jesus had to go through it and we can't soften that. And in fact, we ought to look at it and understand that that stands for the black load of sin that just the number of people in this congregation piled upon him more than enough to make him die that way. I wonder if you think about some of the types of worldly darkness people you know live in, maybe even you. Teenagers can live in darkness. They don't have to. But they can. In fact, it's easy for them. And the darkness that teenagers can live in these days is like a winding path through a swamp at midnight, and the swamp is full of alligators. And if our young people stumble and fall off the path one way too far, here or there, their music, their media images, their friends, the idols of our society presented to them in enticing ways will devour them in their minds, in their bodies, and in their spirits. Teenagers often live in deep darkness. People in grief are plunged into the dark. We have a lot of folks among us who've had big losses in their lives in the last six months. The biggest loss a person can have, a spouse taken away after 50, 60 years of marriage. Sometimes the survivor feels like he's the one, she's the one who's inside a tomb and can't get out. That can be what it's like to live in the depths of grief after a loss. Mental illness or depression imposes a shadowland, dark existence. Your paper told you this morning of a woman who hanged herself in Lancaster who was mentally ill. And I learned right before this service that she's a sister of someone who used to be, a long time ago, a member of this church. Those are dark places to live. Physical abuse puts people in the darkness. Sexual abuse. Divorce. And you know, I'm sure you do, know, maybe you don't even know who they are, but you know men who worship at the altar of pornography today. It's an easily accessible altar, and it is dark. And men spend their time in the family room or the den worshiping at that altar, just like Judas, going out, and it was night. 
And there's only ugliness and destruction in that midnight place. Jesus died alone in the dark. And he did that to counteract and assert his power against all the things that are done in the darkness of this world that have power over human beings to hurt them, to harm them, to deceive them. He died in the dark to destroy the works of darkness. And I can tell you tonight, no, it isn't possible to just wave a wand and say, come to Jesus, and and there'll never be any shadows or anything dark in your life, and your grief will magically disappear, and your addictions will go away in a minute. But I can tell you this. You step into the light of Jesus Christ, and at least it isn't completely dark anymore. And there's a guide, a powerful guide, a guide who undertakes, who transforms, who leads. And 1 Peter 2.9 says Christ, by his victory at the cross and his resurrection, calls you and me to move out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thanks be to God. Our Father, tonight, the things we do in the dark of our lives killed Jesus. Somebody had to die for them. He did, so we don't have to. Yet some people listening to me are possibly going to go into the night of eternity because they just thought, that was too easy, that was the preacher's myth, that was the Bible's fairy tale, that doesn't really work. I pray for people who are in the dark. Some of them not of their own doing at all because of grief in their life or abuse by someone else or sinned against, because they're poor, because injustice has been worked against them, but others by bad choices and deliberate moves. Oh, Lord, reach out to us in our darkness and turn on the light of Christ. Save us, O oh Lord, for we have no hope at all. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.